This episode of the Disney Film Project podcast is brought to you by touringplans.com. It is the one-stop shop on the internet for figuring out how you are going to plan your Disney vacation, Disneyland or Disney World, it doesn't matter. Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you want to figure out how to get there and not wait in line? This is how you do it, touringplans.com. Disneyland, you're trying to figure out how to get out there and how to navigate all the cool new stuff like Cars Land and Buena Vista Street and all that great stuff without having to wait in line, touringplans.com. You can optimize your touring plans, check the crowd calendar, do all kinds of great stuff. Make sure you check that out over at touringplans.com. They're the sponsor of this week's episode of the Disney Film Project Podcast. Welcome again, everybody, to the Disney Film Project Podcast. This is the show where we talk about the films of the Walt Disney Company, Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Disney Toon Studios, all the way back to the 20s and all the way up to today. We talk about them all here on this program and over at DisneyFilmProject.com. I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, host of the program, and along with the folks you're about to meet, we run DisneyFilmProject.com. Let's be honest, they do most of the work. I just sit here and talk, but uh, that is where you can find show notes for this very show. You can find Blu-ray and DVD reviews. You can find reviews all the way back to the 1920s, as mentioned before. So make sure you go and check out all the great stuff that is over there at DisneyFilmProject.com. Joining me, as always, a man who's never cast away, that is Mr. Todd Perlmutter. How are you, Todd? Good. Well, that's because I can take two straws and a coconut and build a nuclear reactor. Yes, it's a handy skill to have, I have yes. to say. Yeah. And, of course, from uh, all over the Internet, Miss Rachel Kolb. Hello. How are you doing this Sunday? I, I'm doing well. It's a, it's a fine but chilly afternoon here in Georgia. Uh, and of course, our producer, the person who keeps things running around here, you can find her at about.me slash Cheryl P3. How are you, Cheryl Perlmutter? Doing good. Um, okay, that's for everyone's notes. This is the start of Haley Mills Month. Get, this, is, this is when you're having your party, folks, listeners. That's right, when you're having your, your watching party to watch all the Haley Mills movies. Yep, right in a row. And so... Although we're recording on a Sunday, this was released in January. <laughs> so it may still be cold. It may be warm. We don't know. I released the podcast on Sunday. It could be the same day for all these listeners now. That's right. Especially with Todd's time machine prowess. You never know. All right. And uh, as, as always, when we do special shows or we always reach out and we find people from all around the Disney community to join us and help us talk about these wonderful films and not so wonderful films as the case may be, uh, this time we had to reach far and wide all around the Internet to find uh, my wife, who's in the next room over, um, Sally Kilpatrick, who I, I've been waiting for, like, ever since we started the show to plug her properly on this program. <laughs> whose debut novel, Happy Hour Choir, you can pre-order on Amazon now. You can go to sallykilpatrick.com and find the link. It comes out April 28th of 2015. How are you, my lovely wife? I am doing just fine. All right, the story behind the having Sally on the show is um, last year in fall, um, was Sally, Sally was talking with one of her friends about this movie. Oh, yes, we were. <laughs> And so she goes, why aren't you guys covering this movie? I go, well, because Haley Mills Month is happening. And oh, okay. It's so, all coming back to me now. <laughs> so, like, the other day, Sal was me, why am I in this podcast? 
I'm like, see reference conversation, go. <laughs> and I'd forgotten. There I go. But now now I remember. It probably had something to do with the Enjoy It song. And now, now you know who to blame, Sally. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Yeah, because so the the movie that we're talking about is In Search of the Castaways from 1962, uh, starring the aforementioned Haley Mills. And what was the tagline for this film, Sally? Oh, thousands of thrills and Haley Mills. Oh, my my favorite oh. two are an earthquake of entertainment and an avalanche of fun. Oh. oh. <laughs> And in case you couldn't tell by our reactions, I'm not sure everybody agrees with those taglines. My tagline is, the Jaguar stole the boat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So this is, uh, from, like we said, from 1962, starring Haley Mills and Maurice Chevalier, I think is the main reason why uh, we would want to watch this, right? Because he's Maurice Chevalier, and you don't get to see him that often. And he's all the entertainment in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Correct. Uh, it is based on the Jules Verne novel, The Children of Captain Grant, is, is the first edition. Uh, it's been translated into many languages and retitled and repackaged and uh, reworked and all these sorts of things to sell. But uh, probably not one of Verne's more well-known novels, would we say? I, I would agree. It's also not one of his most liked novels either. Well, and, and this is this is the thing. So we were I was reading up on the novel yesterday uh, when we were watching the movie, and I was trying to figure out, like, the thing that bugged me the first time we saw this, um, which is why Sally was talking about it with one of her friends, it came as a two-DVD set with Treasure Island. So when we did Treasure Island, I went ahead and bought this, and we went ahead and watched In Search of the Castaways. And I was like, this is weird because – spoilers, everybody who hasn't seen it uh, – it's like they go one place that has nothing to do with where they're actually trying to go, and then they go to another place, but it's all along this one, you know, one location. I'm like, this is just strange. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and then I yeah. read about the book, and it's basically they did that so that they could sell books in different areas. Yeah, well, the book is yep. actually split into two parts. So it's, it's, it's the adventure and then the cannibals are like the two titles of the two halves to the book. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> But yeah, so like like part of the book takes place in South America and part of it takes place in Australia and New Zealand. And they basically did that. They split it almost into two books in some places to sell more books that way. And so the movie's kind of the same way and it doesn't make much sense. Oh, you got to do what you got to do. Sell some books. This is a true statement now that I'm <laughs> Oddly, though, it was one of the most wildly successful movies of 1962. Third best yeah. And into 1963, so. Yeah, third highest box office film of 1962. Um, considering the fact that it was released in December, that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Well, it was released again in 1963 over in the United Kingdom, and that's what carried it again as one of the most popular movies in 1963 as well. So. Uh, okay. Nice. All right, so... Uh, the book is the book that it comes from. The children of Captain Grant is named so because the character that Haley Mills plays, Mary, and her brother Robert, are basically recruited by um, Lord Glenarvan, who owned this ship that their father was on that got uh, shipwrecked or or sank. We don't really know for sure. He thinks it sank. They think he was shipwrecked. Um, 
and they are recruited to go on this adventure to find their father. Uh, in the film, however, it's the other way around. The children approach Lord Glenarvan uh, in order to get him to go and look for their father. And they are accompanied in this by Maurice Chevalier. <laughs> yeah, which in the book, um, he's not the man who found the letter. Uh, he just accidentally stumbles upon their boat because he was meaning to actually travel on another boat. I like uh, this version better. Okay. <laughs> Although I did wonder why he was with the children. Did, did they not have any other trusted guardians? He just showed up one day and they said, no, no, children, go along with the French professor and see if you can find someone to help you. Well, <laughs> well th there's a heavy implication that they verified the letter that he found, which, as we learn at the end of the movie, is didn't, matter. didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Maurice Chevalier is playing Professor Paganel, who is a professor at uh, the University of Paris, um, who apparently has lots of vacation time. <laughs> I told you he's French. They have more vacation time than we do. Or, and lots of sabbaticals. That's what uh, I'm saying. Good point. Okay, fair enough. Uh, because, yeah, they're gone for a long, long time. But the movie opens with, uh, in 1858 in Glasgow with Professor Paganel and Robert and Mary Grant um, trying to sneak onto or get onto the ship of Lord Glenarvan to let him know that, uh, as we eventually find out about this message in a bottle. But they spend basically the first ten minutes of the movie, and this is not a long movie, um, trying to sneak onto the boat. I like the walking backwards up the gangplank because when I was a kid after seeing this movie, we would go and do that to try and get into places. I'm not kidding. Did it work? Did it work? Sometimes. <laughs> Fair enough. We didn't have guards with the uh, whatever that mustache is, mutton chops, right? Is that what that is? Yeah, no, mutton chops, yeah, just yeah. the hangy mutton things. Chops. Okay. Are you yeah. saying mutton chops makes one a more effective guard? More intimidating. Oh, well, there, okay. there's a reason why in every iteration of Les Miserables, Javert has giant mutton chops. Because he makes you a better law enforcement professional. Exactly. <laughs> Who knew? Well, when I'm president, every law enforcement official will have mutton chops. Um, but yeah, there's, I mean, there's some cute gags. I mean, that's what I think is interesting about this movie is like um, we talked about in, in So Dear to My Heart and some other movies that we talked about, like that, that the Disney studio tended to put together in this time frame a lot of movies with just individual gags that were loosely held together. And that's what I think this is, because you have the gags of the kids under the table on the yacht once they finally sneak on and uh, Marie Chevalier sneaking them food and how they're getting chased around the yacht. And, like it's all these little gags that are kind of amusing that really don't add anything to the story whatsoever. Yeah, the story is very secondary in this movie, for sure. As in most Disney films before, you know, probably the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah. I mean, even Mary Poppins is a very loose collection of gags. It's just that the story is more poignant, so it's, you know, it, it resonates better. Well, also the gags in Mary Poppins are held together better. And, yes, true, better yes, effects. True. Yeah. yeah. And we should mention, so we brought up 
Mary Poppins that this is actually directed by Stevenson, who is a, who is one of the most prolific directors Disney's ever had. So yes, for and sure. And they used um, Ellen Shaw again. I noticed in the credits. Yes, yeah. Ellen, Peter Ellen Shaw does all the backgrounds in this, which is which one yeah. of the coolest ones I'll I'll talk about when we get to it. But there's one that's really well neatly done. Yeah, so. he does a lot of matte paintings for this. So you won't believe what I found, guys. What? I found us a Star Wars reference. No way. <laughs> yes, the kid who played Robert Grant grew up and has become a filmographer in life. And he not only did Star Wars Episode 1, Star Wars Episode 2, and Star Wars Episode 3. Ah, so he's, what do you know? He's a camera guy. Nice. Yep, so he did a lot of camera work for that Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so that's apparently that's maybe that's why he went missing, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, there's there's one point in my notes where I said, "What happened to Robert?" Because he's literally gone for like twenty minutes towards the end of the movie. Yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, I thought, they don't. But I thought that I thought that was interesting that he was like this was like his he's he only have the two real films acting cards in life. And the rest of the rest of his most of the acting credits are now cameramen. Yeah, well, it's very common for for people to go in as child actors and realize they actually want to be in the movie industry but doing something else. It's actually a very common thing. I wonder yeah. if we lived in England and then maybe that because this was also done in Pinewood Studio as well. Yeah. And so maybe he, since they film in England, so. That makes sense. And I think this was one of the very last ones done in Pinewood Studios that was a Disney film, right? Uh, might have been. It, it, that would make sense. I mean, they didn't film a lot. Uh, they, they cut back a lot on their big productions in the, in the late 60s, early 70s. So, yeah, that would make sense. So once the, uh, once the professor and Robert and Mary Grant do finally get in front of Lord Glenarvan uh, and his son John, uh, they, Professor Paganel, after mistakenly handing over a champagne bottle that he had stolen, uh, <laughs> instead hands over the message in a bottle that they believe has come from Captain Grant. And it says very little that they can make out except for Captain Grant and 37th Parallel. So they know that he's somewhere on the 37th Parallel, but they don't know exactly where. Uh, which is a key point in the movie because if not for that, they would not know anything that happens the rest of the movie, and they would it would be like a twenty minute movie. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would because the second half of the movie is really like a third of the movie. So yeah, well, the second half. Of the, yeah, I was gonna say it's if it, if even that. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, so what ends up happening is. You know, they they look on the map and decide, okay, well, he can't be in Australia. He can't be over here. He's got to be in South America. So if we if we set sail for South America, land on the 37th parallel and go across South America, we will find him eventually. I love how Paganel um, takes the time to convince his lordship that uh, it's all his idea constantly throughout the movie. (laughs) He is sort of a French con man. <laughs> True. Which, which is why it takes uh, the Lord, his lordship a while to come around to even liking him. So, but I'm not quite not? sure I ever came around to liking him, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> you, you weren't, you weren't uh, swayed 
by uh, Marie Chevalier? Unfortunately, no. I kind of really hated his character. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he amused me. <laughs> Probably because, yeah, he amused me. Honestly, I think the the characters that I liked the best in here were the Lord and John. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much character to any of these characters. I will say that. I will say no. I enjoyed the Indian profusely. <laughs> you mean the and Italian? That, yeah, he's Italian. <laughs> and that wasn't in any way, shape, or form stereotypical. No. Right? No. No, no not, not at all. all that <laughs> Sorry, no. <laughs> there's none of that in this movie. No, there's no stereotypes and no uh, misconceptions about what actually occurs in South America. Um, yeah, it's interesting because the, so they finally do set sail for South America. You know, they've convinced... Uh, the, the Lord uh, Paganel has actually been kicked off the ship. The way that the way that actually works is that they don't convince him. Uh, they kick him off the ship. He sneaks back onto the ship. They're going to take Robert and Mary home. As they're setting sail, he's on the ship. John discovers him in a lifeboat, and then they convince his lordship to to sail for South America. Because why not? It's something to do. Which yeah, is pretty apparently. much what John says, right? He's like, he's like, I'm really bored of the Mediterranean. I really want to do something else. This is an awesome chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they do end up in South America uh, and start on the 37th parallel, marching across the Andes with uh, Marie Chevalier singing a song in French, which French goes points. on like it goes on way too long for us not to know as the audience what in the world he is saying. <laughs> but that's why they teach you how to sing it in English. Right. After, what, two and a half minutes of him going, French word, French word, French word. Because <laughs> that's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> also, th this is the most unlikely search party for the Andes. Right? Because it's the three kids. Yeah. Two old men. Right? Yes. And then some guides. That's the search party. <laughs> well, I think everything about this whole sequence is very unlikely, especially that chase down the mountain after the avalanche happens. Uh. <laughs> are, are we, we going to talk about the green screen in this movie? Because, I oh hope my so. goodness. <laughs> yeah, the green screen is really, really bad. Let's just start there. It's yeah. like Snowball Express level of bad. Oh, no, you no, see, you guys have not seen the um, Voyage to the Top of the World. The, yeah. Oh, the island at the top of the world, world yes. Yeah, yes. yeah that, I, I will say that, that this green... movie is way, is, does way better than that one does. Yes. <laughs> that, and that one involves a giant zeppelin painted like a shark, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That, um, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they're, they're marching across the Andes, and they finally come to... So what, what Rachel was referring to is they come to a place to stop, set up camp, uh, and their guide says, basically, you know, don't camp here. I can't remember what, it, what the word is that he Trango says. Pire. Trango Pire. Thank you, Todd. Um, and warns them not to do that, and it's Marie Chevalier, because Paganel, they never call him that in the whole movie. They just call him Professor. So I'm going to call him Marie Chevalier. Uh, he just says, 
you know, he finally figures out that they mean earthquake, and he's like, oh, don't worry, there won't be an earthquake. This is my problem with him throughout the whole movie. He's like, oh, don't worry, and he's... he eventually even sings a song about it. Oh, yeah, he's the original Bobby McFerrin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he talks about keeping the secret about that there might be an avalanche, the way that one might talk about, hey, don't tell Dad, but we picked up a puppy on the way home. We stopped at the pet store. <laughs> right. Like, no one will ever notice. Yeah. No, no, of course not. One thing that gets constantly awkward throughout the movie is the John and Mary flirting Yes. They have no chemistry. None. <laughs> well, it's, they're also way, I, I think she is still way too young to have a romantic interest storyline in a movie like this. Well, yes. wait, dude, I thought she was going to have a romantic interest storyline with that Indian guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, she did just she give him that Haley Mills look. Yeah. That's what I was saying. The amazing powers of Haley Mills. She just looks at him. He's like, Okay, I'll take you to my village. All right. <laughs> of course, the interesting thing about the the captain's son, Thomas, is that he isn't even in the book. At least not that I can see. No, he's not. Because it's uh, Lord and Lady Glenarvan that uh, lead the search party. Or not Thomas, um, he's it's John. Sorry. Oh, yeah, John. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Thomas is the, the other guy, the one who's the, the uh, con man in all this. Oh, Back yes. There, yeah. Okay. Yep. Who who is one of the t who's like the top bill guy on the marquee, and yet he doesn't show up until an hour and ten minutes into the movie. <laughs> In, into a ninety-minute movie. Yeah. Well, I do have to point out that. He does play one of my favorite characters in one of my all-time favorite movies, which is All About Eve. He plays um, the theater critic Addison DeWitt. So, of course, he's going to get top billing. <laughs> so, yeah, and of course, they cannot keep the secret of the earthquake because an earthquake actually happens. And even while the earthquake is happening, Marie Chevalier is like, oh, this is a once-in-a-lifetime earthquake. And I'm like, um, yes, and you're going to die. <laughs> so it really will be once in a lifetime because you'll be dead I, he keeps having this telescope right throughout the entire movie that just keeps appearing right like he keeps misplacing it and then suddenly he's like oh look and then he's out of telescope again and it's like and it, it, they like point it out like as part of the thing but yeah yes. he, he's watching the mountains fall apart and I'm like thinking death yeah and instead of death what they do is what Rachel referred to, which is they land. They they are on a like big piece of rock that turns into like a bowl, and they slide down the mountain, and they're like leaning left and right to avoid going over the cliffs. And I just want to say to all of our kid listeners at home, don't try this at home, because yeah, it will. Yeah, no. you'll go over the side no. of the mountain. Yeah. The the ice cave, by the way, is like apparently a really big. Uh, engineering feat for Ellen Shaw because what they actually did was there's no actual cave of ice, obviously. So he paints one mat to sit behind them and be on the green, you know, for the green screen, right? Yeah. And okay. then he painted ice cave on glass and they shot through the piece of glass to get the other side of it. So what? all those stalactites <laughs> and stalagmites that you see of the icicles. Wow. Yeah, so it's very involved. <laughs> I can believe it. 
this whole movie seems very involved uh, for what 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 appears to be a relatively small payoff. But that's a whole. Yeah. Other story. Yeah. I also want to point out before we started recording, I mentioned that I'd fallen asleep while watching this movie. This was the point in which I fell asleep the first time watching this movie. <laughs> uh oh. This implies there's a second time. <laughs> <laughs> Where I, I literally had to, once I had woken up, I went to bed and tried watching again the second night, in which I fell asleep at a completely different point in the movie. <laughs> I can understand this. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of bad when this happens during your real, like your first real big um, action set piece of the movie. Hmm. Yeah, that's not generally what you're looking for. I yeah. would I would definitely say like this is a movie best viewed in like 10-minute snippets. Cuz it's not like you're going to forget some vital plot point and wake up later and go, "Huh, I wonder what what I missed." I would imagine <laughs> that you could have just woken up and been like, "Oh yeah, they're still looking for their dad." Well, every time I watch this movie, and I have seen it a few times, is I kind of sort of feel like I remember the scenes, but I don't remember them as like one whole movie. Right. While I'm watching it, because it doesn't feel like one whole movie. I can believe it. Totally well, believe I, it. I just say go watch the enjoy it sequence and be done with it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So they the uh, the giant rocks you know go down the hill, uh, break into two different pieces, and at one piece they they're safe. It's uh, it's Robert who actually slides down the hill uh, and slides off the side of a mountain. Um, but a giant condor comes and picks him up and catches him, like goes into a dive and catches him. And I'm, I, this is the, like, all of this is very unbelievable, but this is the one that I went, okay, that's a little much. No, just wait a few more minutes and then it'll be like, no, 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 this is too much. Are you <laughs> referring to the Indian chief Thal cave shooting the condor so that it goes into a spiral <laughs> and lands him gently at his feet? Or is, would that yes. be what you're referring to? Yes, that would be what I'm referring to. the Indian with the gun who also conveniently speaks English in the middle of Argentina. Oh, yes, yes. And who isn't wearing a shirt even though they're in snow-capped mountains. <laughs> there is yep. that too. But he, has, he, he manages to have his like ceremonial uh, necklace going on. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I've seen that necklace somewhere over in uh, Greenwich Village. <laughs> I think I saw one in Nassau, actually, in the Bahamas. It's it's a, it's a very generic necklace. Um, <laughs> yeah, but like like Sally said earlier, like literally, he doesn't want to help them until Haley Mills just goes, "Come on, dude," and and then he's like, "Sure, I'll take you to our village." It's like, oh, right. I've got horses. I've got resources. You're Haley Mills. Why not? <laughs> These are skills she would put to good use later as uh, the teacher in Saved by the Bell. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, he, uh, the Indian chief takes the group across. Apparently, they go from snow-capped mountains to desert. In the span of about 10 feet. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Because they're walking across this, like, cracked, you know, like, dry desert floor-looking space. With one uh, big tree. Yes. An ombu tree. Apparently there's enough moisture or root or whatever to grow this giant tree. 
which they decide to camp next to. And all of a sudden... Camp Saul in. Uh, yeah, well, most of them, except for the Lord. He camps on the ground. Dude, he won't sully himself. True. He, is, <laughs> I, he does amuse me because he's so very, like... British? I don't know. British, yes. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> well, you you know why. Because I was I was trying to place where I knew him from. And then I looked him up on IMDb and found out that he is the colonel from My Fair Lady. Oh. Which is which is why he endeared himself to me so quickly. Uh. Makes sense. Okay. Yes, uh, but yeah, being the very British man that he is, he refuses to sleep in the tree. Um, and when the Indian wakes everybody up and says there's a flood coming. Wait, he puts his ear to the ground. Yes. Well, how, <laughs> how, like, how, we're listening for a train. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the biggest cliche for detecting anything coming is the putting the ear to the ground. How else is he supposed to know, Todd? I don't know. <laughs> It's a I mean, necklace. Exactly. It's a, it's a weather-sensing necklace. Yes. Um, and then yeah, comes so, 40 feet of water. <laughs> right. He tells everybody to, you know, get up in the tree. He tells the Lord who doesn't do this, um, and John has to, his son, has to come down and fetch him. And then, they, and then Marie Chevalier has to go fishing for British people <laughs> <laughs> to get them back up in the tree, which he does. And... Like, basically, the entire area is flooded. Like like you said, Todd, like 40 feet of water. Like, it went from desert-cracked floor to we're marooned with a sea around us. <laughs> I was waiting for the art to show up. Yeah. I, I don't think this is a natural weather phenomenon, is what I'm saying. Right. And, well, and, like, the thing with the jaguar, I can almost understand. But, like, if it was a dried seabed, where did the alligators come from? Places. <laughs> also, none I would, of them I would, tried to I would say they, they come from the crocodile handlers that are just off screen. Good point. Mm. Yes. If, that, if they weren't just stock footage. <laughs> there was screen. a little bit of stock footage going on. <laughs> yeah, especially later in the movie when we get to the volcano. Uh, but yeah, so they're, they're stuck in this tree. Water all around them. They have no food. They don't know if the Indian is coming back for them. They don't know what's going on. So Marie Chevalier chooses this time to sing the most memorable song from this film, Enjoy It, in his French accent, which has become a staple in this household. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it has. <laughs> because basically he's saying, you know, we're all going to die. Enjoy it. That's the, that's the, what I took away from this. <laughs> what I like is nothing says breakfast like random eggs you find in a tree. Yeah. <laughs> and lighting a fire in a tree. Let's not forget that. There is the lighting of also, fire. Also, you in were a tree. very impressed that he kept his pots and pans. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I had a note about this too. <laughs> They managed to keep quite a lot of necessities and yet still not have everything in the world at the same time. Yeah, they've gone through a flood and an avalanche and they still have their pots and pans. Well, his jacket's like Mary Poppins' carpet bag. True. <laughs> Just pulls random things out of there. It's kind of like got a freezer inside. That's how I figure all the food is kept. That would make well, sense. 
that and he stuffed his jacket while they were on board the ship the first time. Yeah, true. I really wanted him in the very beginning to just take the fork and stick it in the ham and walk off with the entire ham. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's legitimate. Yeah, I, I don't understand the Enjoy It song. Now, I will note that the songs in this were written by the Sherman Brothers. I don't think we should hold that against them. <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with the actual tunes themselves. It's just, it's weird that this is even a musical movie. Yeah, it, it feels completely shoehorned. Well, it's Maurice Chevalier, right? They, it, it, he's, he's, he, that's his thing, right? He sings. Yeah. So they, they put in basically three songs for him to sing, right? Because he sings the Merci Beaucoup song, the Grimpon song, and then this one. Um, and Haley Mills sings the fourth one. Right, which, again, it's, it's Haley Mills. song. Yeah. Right. Um, well, one of the things about the cast, and we didn't really discuss this, is despite that there's just like the issues that we've kind of sort of touched on in the movie, you can see that they were intentionally engineered as a cast, right? Because it's, it's got, you know, likable guy, likable old guys, you know, so, and it's got the young kid, the young romance, and it's got the kid who always gets endangered, you know, it's, it's one of those, you know, covers all three generations that might be seeing the movie together. It, true. Yeah, good point. Yeah, he, it, it does, it, they did kind of go and say, okay, we need somebody like this and somebody like that. Yeah, it, it's movie making by a Chinese menu. <laughs> uh, so it's not enough for them to be stranded in the tree, um, which feels like half the movie is in the tree. It's yes. not, but it feels that way. Uh, it's not enough to be stranded in the tree. They, the tree, they, they have to have a jaguar come and jump in the tree and threaten them and menace them. And even though, kind of. yeah, like really menace them by walking around. Like, not that he, that's green screened or anything. <laughs> no, or, not at all. or stock footage. No, no. <laughs> uh, it's not enough for the jaguar to be in the tree and the flood. Then we need the lightning to strike the tree and set the tree on fire. Yes. I did want to say, though, one thing is, is at this point, uh, his lordship there is writing a uh, note and sticks it in a bottle, which makes the whole <laughs> movie go full circle. Yes. Right? And then I love that it gets eaten by an alligator. But he actually writes down that it's latitude 37 south, which means that they stayed on that, and they're at 66 west, so I looked, and that's how I knew that they were, like, dead in the middle of Argentina. Oh, yeah, they did say something about the Pampas. Yes. At some point. I think donkeys were involved. <laughs> Most likely. There's, there's a lot of things involved. <laughs> yeah, so they, they do end up, uh, you know... They, they manage to escape the fiery tree with the jaguar because the jaguar steals the raft that John had been on, as Cheryl mentioned, <laughs> and, that John had been working on, I should say. And then Maurice Chevalier, again, saying how lucky they could be when a, a giant watery tornado water spout comes and knocks out the fire and knocks over the tree. But it becomes a boat. In real life, it does not become a boat. It becomes a death trap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, ever getting in the tree in the first in the first place was a death trap. <laughs> right. It was a bad idea to listen to anyone who said get in the tree. Um, but they they managed to float along until uh, the Indian chief actually does return, 
and takes them to talking, his village. Wait, wait, talking about tools, Lordship still has a sextant at this point in the movie. <laughs> when they've been on land for like three months, it feels like. Yes, and he's steering the tree with a sextant. That is his lucky sextant. He never leaves home without it. <laughs> it, it might have been in Paganel's uh, jacket his, there. His jacket of tricks. <laughs> That's a good point. And so he takes them to their village, and they're like, oh, finally, we're going to find my father because, you know, the Indian chief had said that, you know, Captain Grant might be there. And so Headley Mills is all excited. They go, and uh, his Lord Glenarvan pays them for the, the, the white men that they're holding, and it's just these three random guys. <laughs> yes, wrong, wrong, wrong white men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they just kind of all look the same to them. You know, just a bunch of white guys. I guess. You're supposed to know. <laughs> well, my whole question is, okay, so you're paying them to set these other people free. Who's to say they're not going to then take you as hostages and hope for money from someone else? I mean, the uh, only explanation right. is the, the power of Haley Mills. That's the only explanation. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and the magic of calmingness of Thalclave, who, like, basically they all start freaking out that it's not the right people, and Thalclave's like, hey... Hey, wait a minute. That's not my problem. <laughs> no, re no refunds, white man. <laughs> That's a you problem. Yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's like, dead. not my problem. But it's around this time that Maurice Chevalier proves his uselessness uh, and figures out that, oh, I'm sorry, I must have misinterpreted. They have to be in Australia instead. Because they and were the wrong type of sharks. Right. Because <laughs> the shark that he, that he cut open to find the bottle is only found in Australia, which I would like to note earlier in the movie, he said there's no way they could be in Australia. <laughs> Those words well, came out of his mouth. In his defense, yep. he did say the word stupid about 400 times. He did. Good point. He for, did do for, that. Those, for the three scenes leading up to this, because he already realized <laughs> it a while ago. Yeah. Uh, so that ends the Argentinian South America part of the film. And we <laughs> instead then move on to Australia. Dun, dun, dun. Because, so, so what we're saying here is everything that we've just described from the moment they got on the, from the moment they left for South America until the moment they dock in Australia, they accomplished nothing. And serves no purpose. Correct. Yeah. Oh, and there's, there's literally a line where I think Thal Cave says, um, well, if you find that something isn't in one place, you should check another place. Thank you, and this Talcare. is treated as great knowledge. Yes. <laughs> I think we should put it on a bumper sticker. Or sew it on a, on a pillow. Yes. <laughs> this my, is knowledge that we, we would have never come up with otherwise. My point is, we recently did Alexander No Good Horrible General Day. I hate to say, this day is more worse than Alexander's. <laughs> I would agree. Yeah, yeah. Except that this is probably a few months, but still. It do, it's still, I'm, I agree. This is worse. Uh, so they end up in Australia, end up in Melbourne, uh, even though the map that they're, they show shows them going to Sydney. Anybody else far. catch that? <laughs> they, but they end up in Melbourne, and it's, it, they put it out in the papers, apparently, that they're looking for Captain Grant. It's the same mistake that he made in the beginning of the movie. Yes. Y yeah. Yeah, there's no yep. character growth in this film. None. <laughs> no, they don't None. learn. No. Yeah. They don't learn from their mistakes. So they put it out in the papers, and uh, Thomas Ayrton, 
who is, as Todd mentioned, who was the character was had third billing on the film, finally shows up, says, oh, yes, I remember where they were. Uh, I saw them a few a little while ago. Um, yes, just go with me and I'll help you. And don't don't ask any silly questions. It'll be fine, fellow British man. <laughs> and he goes along with it. I, that was the point where I looked at you and said, "Is there some kind of pact going on here?" <laughs> we we yeah. learned at Trust this point. Trust me, in the movie, I am British. <laughs> we've learned at this point in the movie that his lordship is a little gullible. Yes. <laughs> well, it's it's like Treasure Island syndrome because he's like, "Come on, we'll go," and and it's like, "I'll get the crew, and I'll load the ship." And, like, Robert and Mary and Professor Paganel are looking out the ship, and they're going, this is a very unsavory crew, and what's in those boxes? And John and his lordship are going, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Long John Silver. I mean, Thomas Ayrton has told me it'll be okay. <laughs> and, and like I said, notice, notice the character you forgot to mention, because this whole thing to get from the end of South America to here is about 15 minutes. And I'm like, where the heck is Robert? He's off uh -huh. drinking with the crew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. He disappeared. He had yeah. KP with Long John Silver. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's in, he's actually in the other Robert Stevenson Treasure Island movie. <laughs> <laughs> he is, right? He literally is. I think he actually is, yes. Uh, so, yeah, they set sail, and surprise, surprise, Thomas Ayrton is not what he says to be, and all of the crew that he hired are mutineers, who mutinied on Captain Grant, and now they're using the ship to take guns to the Maori, the natives, and, like, again, like, I'm watching this going, like, this is Treasure Island. This is exactly what happened in Treasure Island. And I love how uh, Paganel says that these guys are all from the penal colony. <laughs> 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 no, 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 they're not. You're imagining it. <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. Um... Come on, Lord Glenarvan, let's go see the engine room. And that's what, seriously, like, that's what, that's how he misdirects him. He's like, no, 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 I have a British accent. He has a French accent. You must trust me. It's pretty much what it amounts to. Uh, but yeah, Haley Mills and, uh, and John discover that they're actually running guns. They get chased around. They mutiny on the ship. They cast the people who are in search of the castaways become castaways in a nice twist of fate. Yes. And we learned about the EAC, which means that, that uh, Finding Thank Nemo was not the first movie that it was mentioned. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Crush himself actually comes and carries him. You just can't see him. He makes a silent cameo. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Somebody should Photoshop that. They should. Uh, they end up on the beach, uh, and they are captured by the cannibals, the Maori cannibals. Uh, and they end up in a shack on top of a mountain with... Jim Belushi, it looks like playing the Maori chief. <laughs> it, it, it really, it really does. Actually, now that you say it, <laughs> I'm telling you, this is what it looks like. It looks exactly like him. Um, and they, this is where they meet um, Lunatic Ben or Wild Ben or whatever his Bill, name is. Bill, Bill, him too. Uh, the, who apparently was on Captain Grant's ship and has developed some sort of biblical lunacy. Because he keeps quoting Bible verses, and he's crazy, but he's also smart. And he bonds with Paganel. Of course, because also crazy. <laughs> I would also like to give uh, him the award for most annoying character. <laughs> Could not stand him. 
Wild Bill manages to figure out a way to escape because he manages to use. He says, "Let's put Rob. This is the. I'm paraphrasing the plan. Let's put Robert on the end of a rope and throw him across the mountain." Perfect plan. <laughs> a, a rope that we took two years to make out of our own hair. And cloth. And cloth. And, and later and we learn apparently gunpowder. Gun yeah. <laughs> and gunpowder. I don't but, know where they got the gunpowder, but. Yeah, and, at least the rest you can believe. And not just throw him across the mountain. Throw him across the mountain so he can grab it and then we can escape. And then rather than like going to safety, we're going to, we're going to go to a volcano. <laughs> You know, in book reviews, they refer to characters who are too stupid to live. There are a few of them in this movie. <laughs> and at this point, I'd like to say, and Paganel agrees with the volcano plan, says this is a good plan. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it well, works. That's, that's because Paganel has no problem with putting children in danger in this movie. Good point. Well, they're not, Absolutely none. They're not his children. Good point. Why does he care? <laughs> yeah, there's no real explanation for what he's getting out of this whole thing. I, I well, he's enjoying it. I, <laughs> I guess so. I and guess he acts it. he acts almost more like a geology professor than a geography professor because he's all about earthquakes and volcanoes and avalanches and. Yeah, I'm guessing that was not the right word. <laughs> he knows everything that's going on. Something got lost in translation. Yeah, uh, yeah but they, they managed to escape. They go across the volcano. They set off a volcano, or at least a stock footage of a volcano. <laughs> oh, stock footage galore. It's like literally them green screened in front of like the worst stock footage volcano you could ever see. Because the lava like runs over people, and they're still standing. I, I, and don't forget the the natives are running are running in place from the volcano yes. on the screen that's behind them. Oh my them. gosh, that was horrible. <laughs> uh, yes, but they managed to escape from the volcano and get into a boat. That's uh, the boat that they came to the island with. Yeah, the boat that they they drifted. They managed to get into it and um, they row to the next island over. I guess. I, I wasn't sure if it was next island or just the boat moored off the coast. It was one or the other. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure, but apparently they knew where to go because they found their dad, Captain Grant, who is serving as a a, a gun evaluator for the cannibals. And translator, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So he's still a hostage, but he's a valuable hostage. He's right? barking on their behalf. Because he's smart. He 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 he. <laughs> Sorry, you, Bill Gay gives me a tick, a nervous <laughs> tick. So they manage to get there and and see that their father is there. Um, get on the ship that's moored off the the Lord Glenarvan's ship, um, and somehow overtake so that the Maori leave the leave uh, Captain Grant and uh, and go back to the island. Uh, and overthrow Ayrton. It's rather anticlimactic, actually. Yeah, they sneak on board and they take over the ship. I mean, that's basically what happens. It's not like anything special. No, which is odd because they couldn't do that before, but now they can. Well, here's the thing. Somehow Ayrton's men managed to capture the entire crew, which is apparently more than the three guys that we saw earlier in the movie. They're all stuffed in this cage, and they have the right plan. They go and they release all these guys who then help them retake the ship. But it's like 
how did they get taken in the first place if that's if it was that many people exactly yeah uh, and so they get reunited with their with their dad and they start sailing for home and this is when um, wild bill reveals that he was the one who put the note he forged uh, the note that before he you know found religion he was in fact a forger and everybody has a big laugh uh, and then Mary and John walk away holding hands and we're supposed to think that they have some sort of bright future in love together I don't think that no <laughs> no and they watch the worst rendition of the Southern Cross ever on a mat y- yes my feeling is by the time they got to port, Mary is like, I got en- I've had enough of you. Just go away. <laughs> she had enough with him like eight times during the movie. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> the thing is like, about this is like not a lot goes on. Um, even though it's supposed to be this high adventure movie, it's just a bunch of these little gags, adventure gags. Um, it's not very funny. No, it's no. really not. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be. But it's not. Um, and, and there's not a lot of character growth, which, if you put all that together, does not make for the best movie-going experience. Not really. Yeah. But yet, it made a lot of money. And, you know, like you were saying, Todd, you'd seen it before. I had seen it before we ended up buying it on DVD, sort of accidentally. Um, and people have fond memories of it. So it's, it's one of those that – it's one of those Disney live-action films that a lot of people have probably seen but don't – remember it until you yeah. start telling them about it. I mean, the disappointing thing I kind of feel for people who are watching this as, because again, this is Haley Mills month as a Haley Mills movie. Well, it's primarily not a Haley Mills movie. She's really like a tertiary character almost to the entire story. Yeah. It's a Marie Chevalier movie. True. Yeah, I, I honestly can't think of anything to really describe her as a character. I mean, no, she's, yeah. she's just kind of there, and she wants to find her father, and that's it. And she doesn't understand relationships. Because she's, like, clueless as to what's going on the entire time until the end of the movie. With John, I True. mean. Yeah. True enough. And we should, right. we should say that Haley Mills only made six movies, and this is her, with Disney, and this is her third one. Before she came back for the other for the Parent Trap sequels, but I mean actual in theater movies. Right, right, right. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I mean, there's there's not a ton to say, so um, let's let's rate this one, and um, and away we will go. I will let our guest go first. Uh, Sally, your thoughts, one to five. I'm gonna go with a two. That, I'm feeling pretty generous about the two, but a two, a generous two. Uh, I actually agree with you. I would go with a two as well on this one. I mean, you know, I think it gets a, a couple points just for um, the fact that we continue to sing Enjoy It over and over again. That's precisely about one and a half points of it right there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rachel, what about you? I'm going to give this one star, and I'm going to say that they missed a huge opportunity to take a surrealistic turn with this and just start following the jaguar after the tree gets flooded. <laughs> I would have really loved if this movie would have just gone completely off the rails and started following the jaguar with maybe a voiceover by Dick Van Dyke playing the jaguar. 
It's true. Dick Van it would have been way ahead check. of its time. Yeah, either that or maybe they could have sent uh, Robert off on the boat with him and uh, they could have had another sort of Life of Pi moment. Yeah. <laughs> life of Pi before Life of Pi. It could have been the Jaguar <laughs> who was finding the telescope and finding the sextant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cheryl? Um, I'm going two and a half. Um, I'm giving this extra credit for natural disasters. <laughs> An extra half star for natural disasters. There you Is, go. You know, that's a valid point. Is there a natural disaster they managed to miss? <laughs> Maybe tsunami. That's all I can think of. Um, they, they also missed um, the What's Dorothy. Someone help me. Tor uh, tornado. Well, they did have a water spout, which is yeah, technically a tornado not, on the water. That's not actually a tornado. Todd, you got the last word here. Yeah, that leaves me. Boy, I'm really torn. It's, it's not like I hate this movie. I just... Here's the thing. Like, if, if I was to say any Disney movie that I would say the, if they still own the rights to make it, that it would be great and ripe for to have a remake done of it, it would be this one. Because I think that the story could be done better. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's I would so if I, from that point of view, you know. But at the same time, I have to read this movie for what it is. So for me, like I can't go a two like you guys. I and I can't go as low as a one. So I'm going with a one and a half. I kind of feel that that's where I'm comfortable for this. That's perfectly fair. So uh, yeah, I think we're all in that range of you know like one and to one to two and a half ish sort of. Uh, so not you know. I don't think anybody's particularly bullish about it. It's it's definitely not the worst thing we've done on this podcast, but it is certainly not the best. So uh, make your own decisions accordingly as you go through your Haley Mills Month marathon. Let me ask marathon. this question, as I'd like to ask. Would you pay the $3 for it again? No. <laughs> okay. No. Okay. I mean, but we own it, so it'll probably happen again, whether I like it or not. Would you have bought, okay, so you own it. Would you have bought it had you looked at the DVD? I would not have bought this just to have it. No okay. way. I mean, it's no. not Beverly Hills Chihuahua, but no. Okay. Todd? Oh. Well, did I spend the $3 or did you spend the $3? Really, what happened there? You, you, spent, you, spent, you spent, no, come on, you spent $3. Um... No, I think that I wouldn't. I would not watch this if it was in the background, if it was on TV. But I don't think I'd pay for it again. And I'm in, I'm in the same boat with Todd. I would I would I would DVR it and keep it on my DVR and watch it where I felt like I did a Haley Mills nostalgia point. But I wouldn't go out searching. I wouldn't be paying the three dollars for it. All right, there you go. So make your decisions accordingly, folks. So that is our look at In Search of the Castaways. Uh, we, if you guys agree with us, disagree with us, let us know what you think. Uh, go leave a comment in the show notes over at DisneyFilmProject.com. You can email us, DisneyFilmProject at gmail.com. You can always tweet us at DizFilmProject, or, of course, you can find us on Facebook at DisneyFilmProject. Uh, if you are listening to the show, I hope you will take the time to go to iTunes and rate or review or both. Uh, that helps people find the show, so we appreciate it if you could do that. And, of course, you can always listen as well on Stitcher or on Diz Dad's Radio. So if you could uh, please uh, visit both of those places, let them know that you appreciate them carrying our show. Uh, that would be great. All right, dear, uh, thank you for joining us for the show. And people can look for your debut novel, Happy Hour Choir, on Amazon right now. It comes out on April 28th, 2015. Everybody go pre-order. <laughs> thank you for having me. 
Uh, and for Todd and Cheryl and Rachel, I'm Ryan, and we'll see you again soon. On my soul, I don't know which is worse, a crazy man who thinks he's smart or a Frenchman who admits he's stupid. Take your hands off me, monsieur. Never have I been thrown from any place in my life. Let's not set a precedent. A slight miscalculation, my lord. I'm afraid we're on the wrong volcano. Ridiculous. Why would a shark want to swallow a bottle? Ah, there you are, my boy. Better get some sleep, you know. Got an early start.